Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Main Street Finance Podcast. I am, of course, Alex, your host, and today we're going to be interviewing Jeff Porter. Jeff has had a 20-plus year career in investing, holds a CFA charter, is a certified financial planner, and is the chief investment officer at Sullivan, Briette, Sparrows, and Blaney, which is a fee-only financial firm which currently manages $4.3 billion for their clients and was rated among the top 50 firms in Washington, D.C. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. Uh, appreciate you having me on. Looking forward to this conversation. Oh, it's no problem at all. There is no doubt in my mind that I am getting the better of this arrangement. That's <laughs> <laughs> nice what you said. So, Jeff, let's go ahead and start at the beginning. What made you start to pursue investing as a professional career? Ooh, I would, I would probably say a, a turning point was I went to the University of Virginia uh, for college, and there was a rock star econ professor. Uh, he was so popular that he needed to uh, teaches classes in a 500-person auditorium. And uh, I just remember being in that class and being really interested in the content. You know, I was actually learning for the sake of learning, which was different for me uh, up until that point. You know, usually I was learning to get the A, you know, pass the test, but, you know, it was just different. I was just absorbed in the material and, and loved it. And also, you know, being at the business school, you know, back in the late 90s, it was just perfect because, you were getting the book knowledge, the academic knowledge, um, but I was also cutting my teeth on investing my own money and my family's money in the midst of the tech bubble. And the tech bubble was just was just, just craziness. You know, it was the wild, wild west. I remember leaving uh, some of my business school classes just to check my portfolio, and it'd be up like 20% from the day before, you know, and that was just normal back then. So it was a really exciting time, and I think that just kind of got me going for, hey, I might want to you know, pursue this uh, for a career. All righty. Well, obviously, you're at a very high level here being a chief investment officer. So what kind of education or, and or training have you received, you know, up to become a financial advisor all the way up through your position as a chief investment advisor? Or I'm sorry, chief yeah. investment officer. Yeah, I mean, it's good to obviously have some background, you know, through your schooling years in business, you know, background in finance and econ. But in our industry, it's really about designations, right? So you know, I have the CFP and the CFA. Uh, so the CFP is a certified financial planner. And that is a broad education in not only investing, uh, but also retirement planning. You got education planning, estate planning, uh, tax strategy and compliance work as well as risk management with respect to all types of insurance. So it's very broad uh, and it's, it's a perfect designation and a needed designation if you're gonna be a comprehensive wealth manager, a comprehensive financial planner. So that's an important one and that certainly comes with a lot of uh, continuing education. The CFA, that uh, stands for Chartered Financial Analyst, that is a 50,000 foot deep dive into investing. It takes you know, a long time to get. There's three really rigorous exams that take about you know, eight months or so to study for each. You have eight years to pass it uh, because it's so hard. Um, but that is just, you know, that's just everything investing. And you know, then, of course, there's the CPA if you want to be a public accountant. Uh, I don't have that, but my, many of my colleagues do. Uh, and that's, of course, if you want to be a specialist in taxes. So it's really all about the certifications. 
Gotcha. And it sounds like you got some pretty impressive ones. And for my audience at home, I used to be planning on going into this industry and the CFA charter is no joke. And on top of that, it's not like a diploma. Diploma, you got like the eight by 11 square. I've seen a CFA charter because my chief financial officer at my last bank had one. And I mean, that sucker is what, two by three feet? Yeah, it's probably somewhere. It's probably right behind me there. Um, Yeah, it's pretty big if you can if you can see it. Um, yeah, you need something after putting yourself through those painful years. Oh yeah. I see a lot of, if you Google a CFA charter, there's a lot of comparison to, do I get the charter or do I get like a master's or a doctorate? Right. Right. Uh, Yep. That's the case. I'm glad those years are done. Oh yeah, I'm sure. And it's definitely something I'm sure there's continuing education you got to do every year. Yeah. For all, for all the designations. Ugh. And then something else I had noticed, I was doing a little bit of research on the firm. The acronym that is used very often is RIA, and I assume that's Registered Investment Advisor. So could you go a little bit into what that designation means or maybe what that licenses you to do? Yeah, um, it's probably best to kind of compare an RIA to a broker or, or an advisor. So the differences there are if you're a broker or a financial advisor at a brokerage firm, you are self-regulated by FINRA. So your duty of care is to your company. You have to act in the best interest of your company. And then you have to do what's prudent uh, with respect to your work with clients. So that's a little different than a registered investment advisor or an RIA, where we are regulated by the Securities Exchange Commission. And our duty of care is to our clients. So we legally have to act in the best interest of our clients. And uh, that makes us a fiduciary. Um, So if people are looking for fiduciaries, they tend to go uh, to RIAs. And yeah, probably another big difference, and it's it's a painting with a broad brush, um, but I think most RIAs uh, do more comprehensive financial planning. Whereas brokers, there's a lot of them that maybe do some light planning, but they're really focused on either uh, certain products or uh, or just investments. And that's not to say that there's not fantastic financial planners in the brokerage community, but you know I think that's just a general broad brush difference. Yeah, that's the thing about this industry. It's very broad based. There's all kinds of different paths and patterns. Do you want the wide scope of knowledge? Do you want the drilled down CFA? What kind of stuff do you want? There's all kinds of people you can talk to, which actually brings me to my next point. At what point should a person or even a family consider talking to somebody about their finances, whether professionally or just trying to get their stuff straight? Right. I would say most of the time when people either get married or especially when they start having a family and kids, you know, their lives get more complex. They have more decisions to make. And, you know, you think with your spouse, sometimes you have different money personalities or you're joining, you know, your income streams or saving for different goals. That's where a lot of, you know, sometimes advisors get in there as mediator almost, which is fine. Um, But when you have kids, you know, that's when everything starts to come into play. You know, what kind of estate documents do you need? Um, Education planning. Um, you have different goals. So should I be saving for retirement? Should I be saving towards 529 plans for education? Uh, You start to have a little bit more money. So, you know, you start to say, all right, well, you know, how do I invest this money for the various goals? Do you have insurance needs? Um, So just there's, there's more complexity. And if you're not 
necessarily, if you don't have the time or the know-how or, or the knowledge in all these different areas, then that's when people generally reach out and say, hey, I, I need to talk to an advisor. So essentially just a big life event or something that's going to change the course of not just how you're living, but the course of your finances, or at least where those finances should begin to change course. Yeah, exactly. When choices build up and you kind of feel like, am I making the right decision? That's generally when people explore you know, an advisor because you know sometimes people don't know what they don't know. So that, that's always kind of in the back of their head as well. Um, so they at least visit an advisor to see you know, if they're covering all the bases. Gotcha. So life events are definitely a good time to really be reevaluating. Is there a case or an argument for people to be managing their own finances? So, um, you know, I'm a believer that not everybody needs an advisor, right? If, if you have the time and you're an organized person, uh, you are able to kind of keep up with the knowledge or have a good foundation and then are able to you know, continue that that knowledge base with respect to investing. If you have you know, the personality or the emotional makeup to do your own investing, you know, if you check all these type of boxes, then you don't necessarily need an advisor. But probably a question within the question there is, what should an advisor be doing for you? Because if you know you kind of understand what advisors do, then you can understand, you know, am I able to do this on my own or not? So, you know, despite the fact that I am a, you know, chief investment officer, I went through the pain of the CFA and just, <laughs> and really, you know, get out of bed kind of guy for investments. I do not believe that advis advisors should only be managing money for you. I think an advisor should not only be helping you manage the money, but also with any other decision that you need to make with respect to money. So an advisor should help you get to your various goals and help you with model out those goals, whether it be, you know, when can I retire? How much can I spend in retirement? When to uh, get a second car or can I afford a, a second home? How do I educate my, my child? How much should I be saving uh, for that education? Uh, you have various goals, you know, charitable goals. Some people have you know, want to do that on an ongoing basis or towards the end of their life. They want to leave certain uh, amount of inheritances for, for various people. That's all the type of modeling that advisors should be able to do. Then they should be able to consult on various types of insurance. They should be able to consult on estate planning documents. They should be the quarterback to, you know, throw the ball or get you in touch or, or sit at the same table as the various professionals out there. They should be doing tax planning for you, tax strategy work, try to minimize your taxes, be tax efficient throughout your whole life. You know, so there's all these different other areas that an advisor should be doing for you. And uh, if you got them all covered, then you don't need an advisor. If you're deficient in some of those areas, then you might wanna see an advisor. And actually, what is a fee-only advisor versus another kind? So a, a fee-only advisor is an advisor that's not allowed or doesn't uh, take commissions. So uh, it reduces the conflict of interest. Uh, you, you know that you're not necessarily being sold uh, a product and uh, the advisor is getting paid in some way that you know, you're not quite sure you know, how they are getting paid. Um, so it just levels the playing field, I think, puts you more on the side of 
of the client. And you know, as a fiduciary, as an RIA, uh, we just stick with the, the fee-only model. Alrighty, Jeff. So I think that's a little bit solid enough of a foundation that you absolutely know what you're talking about. You blow my knowledge out of the water. I, I got I got nothing on you. So what do you say we go ahead and get into the main idea of today's show? Yeah, sure, no problem. So what I wanted to cover today is a little bit of a little taste of portfolio theory, but more specifically asset classes and how we put all that together. So could right. you go into a little bit of what is an asset class and maybe a couple examples? Yeah, sure. Um, so an asset class is basically the main building blocks of a portfolio. So, you know, cash, cash is an asset class. Bonds, that's an asset class. Stocks. So I'd probably say that those are the three big traditional asset classes. But then once you go beyond that, you know, you go into real estate, you know, commodities, you know, maybe currencies. But I would say the big five are cash, bonds, stocks, real estate, and commodities. So those are the, the big uh, building blocks, the big asset classes. Now, there are also sub-asset classes. So think about within bonds. So your main choices within bonds are the maturity of your bonds, as well as the quality of your bonds. So short-term bonds, I would say, is a sub-asset class, intermediate-term bonds, or longer-term bonds. You know, when you think of stocks, U.S. stocks versus international stocks, sub-asset classes, classes there. Uh, within the United States, you know, large company stocks versus lar- uh, small company stocks. Within, you know, the international world, there's developed stocks. So thinking, you know, Europe, Japan, et cetera, and emerging markets, you know, China, India, Russia, Brazil, uh, et cetera. So uh, they're just the building blocks that make up uh, what you're trying to achieve. Alrighty. And then are there any such thing as maybe a good asset class versus a bad asset class? I wouldn't say necessarily that there's good or bad asset classes, uh, but one asset class may be appropriate for one person and not appropriate for another person. So it all depends on, you know, what type of risk level you want in your portfolio, what type of return that you want, how diversified you want to be. Kind of what, do you want to cover all the bases or do you want to cover some bases? And uh, then you just kind of fit the puzzle pieces uh, together. And, uh, and you know, the, so the weightings and the types of asset classes, you know, not good and bad, just different for different people. All righty. And just to double check, by weightings, you mean sort of like a percentage of how much you have in each class? Exactly. Exactly. Obviously, you know, simple. You have a, a lot of bonds, a lot of cash. You're goal there is to protect against a very volatile portfolio. You're set up more to protect against a classic recessionary, you know, stock market drop, a deflationary event. Uh, so if someone has a, a lot of bonds, then, you know, that's, that's what their goal is for the portfolio. Others might not have that same goal. Sounds good to me. So something you see a lot when you think about asset classes, or if you're doing research on asset classes, you come across a term, or even in investing, you come across something called diversification, the big D word for investments. Uh, Would you mind going into a little bit of diversification and its importance? Yeah, uh, very important. It simply is having different enough investments, either asset classes or strategies that are zigging and zagging to the point where you're reducing 
the chances of a bad outcome, or you're completely eliminating the chances of a bad outcome. So, you know, what are some bad outcomes? You know, the classic bad outcome is that you lose all your money. Uh, and the classic example of that is probably Enron from back in the, you know, the tech bubble days, right? You had these employees, their salary was obviously dependent on Enron. They had bonuses that were being paid out in company stock. And the, the stock was doing so great, many of the employees invested only in Enron stock in their 401k. So, mm. you know, they were fully concentrated. They weren't diversified. And then when it turned out that Enron was a fraud and went bankrupt, they lost everything. So that's the ultimate bad outcome for uh, investors. So, you know, let's say then, you know, all right, somebody knows the concentration risk and they diversify, uh, but they diversify into a whole bunch of different either individual stocks or funds, and they could be in the United States, they could be all over the world, uh, but they're generally all in stocks. Well, if you look back in history, you know, the stock market has a fall of roughly, on average, 35% every roughly five years or so. So if you have portfolios, just round numbers, if you have a million dollars fully in stocks, then you have to essentially assume that your portfolio might go down $350,000. Not to mention, you know, the tech bubble burst or the global financial crisis that declined 50 and 55% respectively. So there you would have a loss of around 500 or 550,000. So if that makes you choke and you know someone sells when their portfolio is down 30 or 40 or 50%, they lock in that loss. Well, that's another bad outcome. So that person might want to start putting in bonds or cash to reduce the volatility of their portfolio so they don't make that type of mistake. So maybe instead of being down $500,000, maybe because you had some bonds in there, you're not down 500000 maybe you're only down two hundred or 300000 depending on how much you have. Yeah, and you know, everybody has that threshold. You know, if I was to put that question in front of people, you know, some people might say, hey, you know, I don't want anything more than $50,000 down. You know, others people might say, yeah, 500000 is fine. Investing is really personal. There's no one size fits all. And, you know, you can go further down the line in terms of diversification. So let's say someone has a nice volatility, you know, target set up. They have, you know, a certain amount of U.S. bonds. They have a certain amount of diversified U.S. stocks. Well, there's other bad outcomes that could occur. You know, the United States or your own country could go through a depression. So that happened to us in the 30s. It took 13 uh, years or a touch more for markets to come back and break even. That's that's not a great, you know, outcome. You know, you could go through a bubble. So in the late 90s, you know, ending 1999, 2000, we were in a bubble. And what happened the next 10 years from 2000 to 2010, the S&P 500 returned slightly negative over a 10-year period. Not a great outcome. You know, uh, your home country, and in this case, the United States, could go through an inflationary period or a period where, you know, rates continue to rise. So that was like the 70s, right? So mm -hmm. both U.S. bonds and U.S. stocks lost 12.5% approximately to inflation over that 10-year period. So here you think you got your bases covered by having bonds and stocks, but over a 10-year period, you lose your purchasing power 
the, to the tune of 12%. So then you might want to think about diversifying internationally or putting asset classes or strategies in your portfolio that protect against an inflationary environment. So you kind of continue to slice and dice the portfolio depending on what you're trying to protect against. So it sounds like you're just kind of taking your money and just splitting it. I'm going to put some over here, some over here. Uh, I'm going to go ahead for those in my audience who maybe haven't heard the expression, but diversification can be summed up in a single sentence. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. It can be, exactly. That doesn't mean that you should put 10% equally in everything. You know, certainly that's better than having all your eggs in one basket that, that goes down. So you, you have to, I think you, you need to have a general concept of the marketplace, right? So the United States marketplace has mostly large company stocks with a little bit of small company stocks. So someone may not want to have 50% of their portfolio in small company stocks. They're more volatile and they just make up less of the market. You know, you look broad-based at the whole world index of stocks, it's roughly 50% in United States stocks and 50% in international stocks. So you should be aware of that uh, just in case you think the only game in town is 100% investing in the United States. So you start, once you know generally, you know, what the marketplace is like, then you can kind of put the puzzle pieces together. And then if you have a view then you may overweight something or underweight something relative to the broad indexes. Makes sense to me. So say you have someone that wants to go it on their own, wants to handle their own stuff. What would you recommend as far as a, let's say individual stocks versus mutual funds instead of commingling them just for a fun, this end on this end. If someone's investing in, let's say individual stocks, how many do you think would be enough to be, you know, fully diversified? Assuming, you know, dart being thrown at a board and not, all right, I want Chevron, Exxon, uh, Shell. (laughs) So assuming people are decently picking separate industries, how many stocks do you think it would take to be decently diversified versus how many mutual funds? Yeah, um, there's been a lot of studies on this and, you know, certainly different difference of opinions and different outcomes um, from the studies. But generally, you can get pretty darn diversified with, you know, 20 or 30 stocks. Now, that's diversified within the United States. But we're talking about, you know, bad outcomes if your country has a certain event or goes through a certain environment. So in that case, you know, you might want to add on a number of stocks internationally. So that means you got to be diversified in international developed worlds. So you, you know, that may take another 20 or 30 stocks, but you also might want to have emerging markets exposure there. And so all of a sudden you're kind of building up a portfolio of, you know, 60, 70, 80, you know, 100, 100 names or so, and you can get pretty diversified. Generally, when people think that, they run into problems. They either don't have the time to track you know all the individual stocks that they have or they can pick a chevron or a pfizer or johnson and johnson but they have trouble picking individual stocks in china or something like that so that's where mutual funds you know come into play exchange traded funds and you know nowadays there are over 7000 exchange traded funds and i think that's versus around 3000 stocks or so in in circulation and so you can slice and dice the market every which way through funds 
and it's probably easier for most people. Definitely. How many mutual funds do you think you would take? And feel free to not so much name specific ones, but maybe if you have this type and this type and this type, three will work. There is no right answer there because one mutual fund might be really diversified, right? You might have a global allocation or a multi-strategy or a global multi-asset mutual fund, all you know, one place they're investing in all ty- different types of bonds. They're investing in all types of different stocks. Uh, they have real estate in there or commodities or, or whatever. And they're almost like a one-stop shop. Now you, you have manager risk in that case because you're relying on one team or one manager to do well there. So in that sense, you're not diversified, but you can be plenty diversified uh, via all the asset classes just through one mutual fund. That kind of brings me to 401ks. You know, now there's these lifetime funds or target date retirement funds. So in that case, you know, that makes a lot of sense for a lot of people who don't know much about investing. They don't want to pick their own funds. They they find everything we're talking about just horrible. So don't know, don't know, care. Yeah, <laughs> they know when they are going to retire, right? And it could be, let's say. 2050. Well, there you can put all your money in a lifetime 2050 fund. And then you have managers that are buying multiple mutual funds underneath it. So it's a fund of funds and they could have 20 funds underneath it. And they are managing it for someone who will likely retire in 2050. So it really depends on whether you're picking your own individual funds and you're trying to slice and dice it yourself versus trying to find a very comprehensive fund. All righty. So we had mentioned corona legislation, you know, things like that that just happen. Say let's go back to at the beginning of the episode we were talking about if you have people that if they're motivated enough to handle their own finances that, you know, they can. At what point should the average investor take notice and maybe make some changes? to their portfolio or their allocations? Or is it just sort of a, if something like this has happened, like sometimes the best case is just to ride it out or like what kinds of things should you really rebalance? Yeah, no, that, I think that's a great question, especially as an election comes up, right? Yeah, everybody's <laughs> talking about that. I strongly urge against looking at the paper or, you know, obviously people talk about politics all the time, you know, thinking about the election or reading about, you know, something uh, out there and saying, all right, I'm not feeling good about this. Uh, I think I'm going to majorly reduce risk. That's a fool's game. And the reason why it's a fool's game, because the market is trying to forecast in everything that you're thinking of this very second. So let's say you think there's going to be a bad outcome because you're reading about some event. The market may also believe that this is going to be a bad outcome. So is the market going to go up or down? Well, let's say the event turns out to be a little less bad than the market thought. Well, the market's going to go up. So you were right in the fact that it was a bad environment, but it all depends on what the market is expecting and then what happens. Market is expecting a bad outcome. It was only slightly bad. The market goes through the roof. So it's it's very difficult to make those type of calls and adjust the portfolio. You know, what I would say is that for some portfolios, 
for some people in life, especially as you get towards a period where you're withdrawing from the portfolio, where risk means something a little different to you, then it's important to be aware generally, I think, of two things. One is the business cycle. So the business cycle you know, starts in a recession, then there's a recovery, then there's an expansion, then it kind of starts to roll over, and then you get another recession. So why is that important? Well, it's important because everybody's worried about, you know, is the market going to go down? Well, in recessions, the stock market goes down on average about 40%. So the average bear market is around 35%, but it's a little bit more than 40% if it's a recessionary bear market. So if you're getting close, you know, long in the tooth in the business cycle, well, your risk starts to increase. And just having that general idea, that may mean you need to pull back a little bit on risk if you're in those, that time period of your life where you're withdrawing from your portfolio. The other big thing to know is back to valuation, right? Because that determines your compensation for taking on risk. So oftentimes when you get late in the business cycle, you're closer to recession, but also stocks are very expensive. So likely they're not even going to reward you that much for the risk that you're taking on. So the risk reward environment doesn't seem to be in your favor. So again, if you're in that time period of life where risk means a lot to you, then you may pare back. If you're saving into the portfolio, you don't need it for a while, what does risk mean? You know, risk is an opportunity then you just save into it and uh, you build up shares on, on the way down. So being aware of those things are important. And I would say being aware thematically of what's going on. You know, an example right now is interest rates are near zero, right? You know, this is very different than what every single investor has been used to over the past 40 plus years, right? So now we have a problem as, as investors. You know, you might only return one or 2% from your portfolio over the next 10 years if you have a basket of diversified bonds, right? At least for that you know, portion. Is that going to hurt you in terms of getting to your goals? Well, if it is, then you have a few choices. You have to either increase risk, increase stocks in your portfolio. But we just talked about it. You might not either be able to, or you might not have the stomach for it. That may lead to mistakes. So other things you might want to evaluate is alternatives. What about private real estate? You know, what about hedge strategies that try to get 4%, 5% type of returns? You know, what bonds used to return in the good old days. Ooh. But you know, these type of strategies maybe have the same volatility as bonds, but they're good at getting around 4 or 5%. You might want to shift your portfolio or portion of portfolio from bonds into these strategies. So being aware of these big themes that are going on, I think is important. Well, alrighty. I think that was perfect. I don't think I could have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> alrighty, Jeff. Well, you've given us some fantastic information today. I'm really appreciative. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, let me ask you this. If people in my audience are curious about you, what you do, your firm, do you have maybe a website, some links that you'd like to share with us? Uh, yeah, I mean, the website is the best place to go to start, uh, www.sbsb, as in Sam Boy, Sam Boy, LLC.com. And we have a lot of content there. Uh, we have bios, including, you know, including my bio. 
Um, and uh, we, we have a LinkedIn page. We have a YouTube page as well. The uh, link is probably too too long for me to tell you here, but I'm sure you have uh, notes uh, in your podcast. <laughs> yes, sir. And all of those links will be in the description below. We will have all of those there for you. All right, Jeff. So now that we have that out of the way, I do have a couple last questions for you if you're ready for them. Go for it. All righty. So the first one, did you have fun? I did. I, you know, uh, I'm an investment nerd. I'm a, you know, a... preach. <laughs> so yeah, no, I did. It was a, it was a fantastic time. I, I love talking about this. I could talk about it for another, you know, couple hours easily. Well, all right. Well, that brings my next one. Look, I could agree with you all day long. I could talk this stuff all day, but since you had fun, would you ever consider coming back to the show and do another episode for us? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Uh, again, just love talking about it. So I'll talk to anybody about this stuff. Oh, be careful. I'll take you up on that. <laughs> Let me know. All right. And do you have any, say, maybe last second words of advice or some parting words of wisdom for our audience here? Yeah, I mean, I, I would probably say just to remember that, you know, when you're talking about finances, you're talking about advisors. It's not just about managing money. It's not just about investing. It's investing, but also about all the other financial planning decisions you need to make. And, uh, and it's just so important to connect the dots between your investing and your financial plan and your personality, uh, your kind of uniqueness. So there's, uh, there's not just one way to manage money, and there's not just one uh, right answer for any other financial planning uh, question as well. well. All righty, well said. And with that, we're going to go ahead and close out the show. I hope you all had fun. Go ahead and give us a like or subscribe or leave a review if you're kind enough. Jeff, thank you again for being here, and I'll see you guys next week. Thanks, Alex. Bye-bye.